Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. We're still on break and re-airing some of our most popular episodes. This week, we have an interview with Evelyn Forget on Mincome and Basic Income in Canada. Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So, Jim, last week we spoke to Senator Eggleton of Ontario about the upcoming basic income trials in Canada, but basic income pilots have something of a history. Yeah, in fact, one of the most high-impact pilots in the past is the Mincom experiment that happened in the province of Manitoba in Canada, where an entire town actually received a negative income tax, a form of basic income, over the course of several years. So that experiment was run in the 70s, but it wasn't until much more recently that the results of that were actually analyzed in a way that allowed the public to, to better understand what happened there. Yeah, and it took the somewhat heroic efforts of a, a professor to actually dig up the results and figure out a way to interpret them in, in a way that was uh, scientifically valid. So we are very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Evelyn Forget, Professor of Economics in the Department of Community Health Science at the University of Manitoba. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Forget. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, as we just alluded to a moment ago, data on the experiments in Dauphin, there wasn't exactly readily available when you decided to look into it. So could you just tell us the story of how you uncovered information about what happened? Sure. Uh, the, the project was actually designed along with uh, several similar experiments in the U.S. in the 1970s to look at the impact on the labor market. So when they set this up, they were really concerned about whether people would quit their jobs. And um, the project was started um, at a time of uh, great hope and great expectations for changes in the way we delivered social programs. But uh, as very often happens, um, governments changed and all kinds of other things happened during the experiment. So the money actually flowed from 75 to 78. The project started in 74. In the middle of that, the provincial government changed and the province was responsible for paying 25% of the costs. Um, and the federal government was a minority government. It was sort of hanging on by its fingernails by the end of the experiment. So it lost political support. And as it did that, the the project tended to get narrower and narrower and to focus more and more on labor markets. So in the 1980s, um, there was some work done. There were there were actually two major sites for this experiment. One was in the city of Winnipeg, and the other was in the town of Dauphin, as you mentioned. In the city of Winnipeg, um, it was sort of a, a standard randomized controlled experiment. And um, in the 80s, there was some work done on the labor market results for that part of the experiment. And they showed pretty much what you'd expect to see, and that is that uh, primary earners, adults with real jobs, don't um, change the way they work very much. There's not much of a reduction in work hours. But they did find that there were two groups who had a larger response. Um, The first were secondary earners. At the time, these were married women, and they um, reduced their work hours in an interesting way. They tended to um, use the um, stipend that they received from the project to buy themselves longer parental leaves when they gave birth. So I think the legal entitlement at the time was about four weeks of maternity leave. And what these women were doing was to um, stay out of the workforce a little bit longer when they gave birth, in a sense, anticipating the changes in social policy we've introduced subsequently. But it was the third category that was particularly interesting to me. And these were, they were called tertiary earners. And the language is really important here. 
because um, it was reported at the time that young unattached males reduced the number of hours they worked substantially. And that was more or less where it was left. And I knew about this experiment. I was actually a student in the 70s, so I, it, this was always sitting at the back of my mind. And um, a few years ago, I started to work on the relationship between health and um, and uh, poverty, health outcomes and poverty. And I remembered this experiment, and I wondered whether we could get any of that data to find out what the impact was on people's lives. And I remembered those boys who reduced the number of hours they worked. And so I went looking for them, and um, I went looking first for the data. Um, what happened was that um, when the project lost political support, the government sort of withdrew support in all kinds of ways. And, and what happened was that um, um, the labor market data was digitized, those papers were done, the tapes that they created subsequently became obsolete, and um, the paper records were packed away in boxes, and it wasn't entirely clear to me where those boxes were. So, so it took me a little while to find them, and I finally did, and, and in fact, they were in paper form. So I, I found 1,800 cubic feet of records, so that is 1,800 cardboard boxes full of records related to this experiment. And um, I knew it wasn't um, going to be very possible to do much statistically with that data. So I started looking for other data sources that would let me get at the, um, get at the results in interesting ways. So one of the things I did was to go looking for those boys who reduced the number of hours they worked, and I found them pretty much where I expected to find them. What was happening was that they were staying in high school just a little bit longer. Um, instead of leaving school at the age of 16 when they were entitled to they, and taking their first full-time job, they were staying in high school and working part-time or working not at all until they were a little bit older. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's not exactly a bad result. They, they reduced the number of hours they worked, but you, you figured those boys would have been in their in their 50s now. And if you look around at 50-year-olds uh, or 55-year-olds and you see the difference in life between the uh, people who finished high school and the people who didn't finish high school in the mid-70s, it's pretty dramatic. Um, so I found that. And then I, I was interested in the health outcomes. And um, just as a matter of luck, um, it turned out that... Um, Canada had introduced uh, universal single payer, payer health insurance just before this experiment took place. So I was able to find everybody that was living in that little town of Dauphin um, during the experiment. And um, Dauphin was unique because it was a saturation site. And that meant everybody in the town received the same promise. That is that if your income falls below a specified amount, you'll receive a top up from this program. So they all received, in a sense, um, an increase in income, income security during that period. So I was able to find them. I was able to create a really nice matched control group and to look at health outcomes, in particular to look at hospitalizations, to look at visits to family doctors. And um, one of the things I found was an 8.5% reduction in hospitalizations for people living in Dauphin relative to the matched control group. So people of the same age, same income, same sex, um, they, they were going to, doc to, to the hospital less often. And when I looked at the codes a little bit more closely to find out why, there were really two categories that um, that showed up. The first was accidents and injuries. So they were having fewer accidents and injuries. Now this is a huge um, category that's picking up all kinds of things like um, automobile accidents, uh, workplace accidents, uh, family violence, um, you know, virtually any acute hospitalization is gonna show up there. And, um, but the second category was also interesting and that was mental health people who were being hospitalized with uh, some kind of a mental health diagnosis that had declined pretty dramatically among this group. 
Um, I also looked at visits to family doctors. I found a reduction in visits to family doctors relative to the control group. And again, this time the only thing that showed up as um, statistically significant was uh, was um, uh, um, mental health issues. So there were fewer mental health complaints. So you mentioned health, education, workforce participation. Were there any other outcomes you'd you'd hoped to you might be able to study, but the data just wasn't wasn't available? Yeah, one of, one of the things I think uh, poverty researchers always look at is uh, birth outcomes, and um, I was really hoping that we would find um, uh, ch- a change in birth outcomes. You know, fewer uh, low weight or early births. Um, that, in fact, didn't show up as statistically significant. I, I think not surprisingly, um, you know, it sounds like a lot. The town of Dauphin had about 10,000 people in it. There were another couple of thousand in the rural municipality. And I had um, three to one match control. So you figure almost 50,000 people, that sounds like a lot. But it turns out that 50,000 people don't actually produce that many babies. Any- mm-hmm. <laughs> so the number, and, and even among the, the ones who do produce babies, most babies are healthy no matter what their circumstances. So bad birth outcomes, you know, um, perinatal deaths, for example, are very, very rare. So they just, uh, they, there just weren't enough of them to uh, show up in my data. And I mean, other things I, I looked at, um, one of the political concerns in the U.S. at the time, not so much in Canada, but in the U.S. Um, focused on um, marital um, dissolution, uh, divorce. When the data first, that, now remember, we're dealing with the 1970s here. These experiments are taking place in the 70s in the U.S. And when the data started to come in, it looked like there was a huge increase in the divorce rate um, associated with uh, with basic income. And I, I think there probably was a large increase in the divorce rate, but it, it probably wasn't associated with uh, basic income, which is the time. Um, but, it, but it became a, a sort of a political uh, football, and um, this became a, a very important issue in the U.S. There was a lot of controversy um, politically, and in fact, the U.S. experiments lost a lot of their support um, because it was um, basic income was seen as an attack on the American family. And so, just for fun, I uh, I looked to see if there was any uh, any impact on um, marital breakdown on divorce, and it turned out there wasn't. Um, I think there was no great surprise there. You know, at least when I heard that, I figured, well, if some people, you know, most likely women, are in marriages where they're financially bound, but exactly. not necessarily bound in any other way, then it's maybe not. You know, if that there was in fact an increase, that's not necessarily a bad outcome. That's exactly right. It's sort of like those boys who are working less. It's not necessarily a bad outcome if they're doing something that I I think has better uh, long term consequences. If the women, if if a marital partner can get out of a bad relationship, it's probably better for everybody concerned. So, in addition to your statistical analysis, you actually tracked down some of these basic income recipients and interviewed them. Were there? Was there anything that uh, came out of those conversations that, you know, goes beyond the, the statistical analysis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, th- I think there is statistical analysis to support it as well. Um, uh, David Kalnitsky has done some work on the um, on the surveys in the dolphin sample, and he, he found um, that... Um, there was less stigma associated with uh, with uh, receiving a basic income than there was um, participating in the welfare system at the time. And I think that's one of the things we heard when we interviewed participants. People said over and over again, this is something this is something that's just right. It's about bringing your income up to the level it should be. You know this is just helping your neighbors. this is this is something that should exist. It's not uh, charity. And so that's uh, something we heard over and over again. 
Um, I, I guess we got a little bit more context about some of the decision making as well. Um, I did track down a number of those boys who um, managed to finish high school during that particular period, the sort of lucky cohort of boys. And uh, they gave us a bit of context. Um, they'd explained that in low-income families, um, the young men in particular were were under a fair amount of family pressure to become self-supporting as quickly as they could so that the family money could be allocated to the younger brothers and sisters. And when income came along, when the money was available to the families, uh, some of those families decided that they could support their sons in high school just a little bit longer. And um, so that gave us a bit of context. And I was actually quite surprised by the size of the response. It was just a little bubble, you know, there was this increase during the period of income, and then when the money stopped flowing, um, the high school completion rate back, right back to where it started. And I think that was partly because of the interaction of people. I mean, if you think about the way people make decisions, um, you think about being a 17-year-old boy, for example, trying to decide whether to go back and complete grade 12. Um, for his family and for him, part of what they're going to think about is how much money the family has available to them, whether they can afford to um, to support him for another year. But for him, especially, what's going to matter is whether his friends are going back to high school. And so what was unique about Dauphin is because the entire community was part of this experiment, it was much more likely that his friends would be in school. And I think that sort of helped to change the attitudes in, um, in the community among low-income uh, recipients. So you'd mentioned some of the political hurdles that came up during the negative income tax experiments in the U.S. around divorce rates. Were there other things that, in looking at the political dynamics around how countries have approached basic income, particularly in North America, that might be relevant for basic income advocates today? Well, I think there's probably a lot less concern about uh, divorce rates today, but um, the, the two things that people always focus on over and over and over again are the cost of the program and uh, the work disincentive. And, uh, you know, it almost doesn't matter how much evidence you can present to people that, you know, demonstrates that people just don't quit good jobs in order to live, uh, you know, at a level of something like two-thirds of the poverty line. Um, you know, there's always a fear that that people are going to free ride. People are just not going to pull their weight. They're going, they're going to be lazy. Um, and so I think that's something you just need to keep beating down. You just need to keep presenting more and more and more evidence to demonstrate it's not not true. Um, the, the other concern, I think, is the cost. Um, there was a concern during the 1970s. There's certainly a concern now in Ontario about how much this program will cost. And I think, you know, one of the things that my work has helped people see, I think, a little bit is that um, we're already paying an awful lot to deal with poverty, to deal with um, insecure labor markets. We're, we're paying for it through all kinds of social programs. We're paying for it in the healthcare system. We're paying for it through special education. We're paying for it in uh, child and family services. And I think if you can take some of the money that we're currently allocating to treating the consequences of poverty and to treating the consequences of precarious labor and economic insecurity and take that money and spend it up front so that families have the resources they need to live decent lives, um, I, I think that that's an important, uh, an important outcome worth considering. So along those lines, what would you like to see um, out of the coming experiments in Ontario? Well, I think one thing that they're very conscious of is collecting data on all kinds of things, um, all aspects of family functioning and community functioning, um, utilization of other health care, of, of other uh, social programs. So I think that's something I'd like to see. I suspect they will still 
and necessarily um, collect a lot of data on labor force participation. Um, I think one of one of the things that it would be nice to be able to see is what it is people do in in their time when they're not working. Um, I can imagine that there there will be reductions in workforce participation for certain groups of people. Um, you know, you, if you think about um, people nearing retirement age, for example, because of the economic changes that have taken place in recent years, you find a lot of people who are not old enough to officially retire to receive a pension, but they may have been uh, downsized from a factory job that they've had for a large portion of their lives and find themselves not really qualified for anything else. Um, so what about those people? How, how, do they, uh, how do they cope under basic income as opposed to the existing scheme? But there are also a lot of people who get to be, you know, 55, 60, 62 years old, and either they get sick or somebody in their family gets sick. And um, I, th I think a lot of people, a lot of women in particular, end up leaving the labor force to take care of husbands or parents. And that kind of caregiving labor is, is something we tend to undervalue, I think, in our society. We sort of fetishize paid labor, you know, being in the force of receiving a paycheck is tremendously important. But there's all kinds of work out there. And I think one of the things we have to do as a society is to recognize the different kinds of work that people do to make society function. So you mentioned that the outcome of younger males staying in high school longer may have been due in a large part to the fact that there was a saturation, that there was that their friends were also staying in school longer. Is that do you expect other outcomes to be highly influenced by that? And is is there actually a need to make sure that we start doing saturation experiments as well as randomized trials in the near future? You know, that's a really hard question to, to answer. Um, as a researcher, I'd say, yes, we're going to get different kinds of results for, and, and saturation sites matter. On the other hand, I know that it's tremendously expensive to do with us an experiment that has saturation sites. And um, you're always kind of you're always kind of trading off when you're designing an experiment. You're trading off a little bit of data for um, for um, a reasonable cost of the experiment and getting results back. So I, I you know, I, I think a saturation site is important. I think it's probably not going to show up in these experiments that are currently underway. So if a basic income were ever introduced, I think we would see stronger effects than will show up in the experiments. So if we were able to remove the limits on what uh, on yeah. what kind of basic ex income experiments we can do, what, how would you design um, uh, a pilot or an experiment? Oh, in a perfect world? <laughs> sure. <laughs> in a perfect world, I certainly would have a saturation site. I'd also have um, randomized controlled trials because I think you're picking up different kinds of things. I think RCTs are very good for labor market um, responses because, you know, you can change the payout a little bit and change the tax back rate a little bit to see how, that, how those marginal changes affect people's behavior. But they don't work so well, I think, on, on the social variables. So I think if, like me, you're primarily interested in quality of life and health and family functioning, um, you know, and community um, behavior, I think those kinds of things tend to show up better in uh, saturation sites. Well, Dr. Forget, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it. All right. This has been another episode of the Basic Income Podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Big thanks to our producer, Eric Davison. And we encourage you, if you enjoy the episodes, to please follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast uh, system of your choice, and to make sure to rate and review our episodes as well. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>